So we are still in, this, in the middle of the series on the book of Acts that we have uh, kind of been exploring all summer long through the lens of, of being sent, the, the motif of uh, being the sent people of God in the book of Acts. And the story begins when the risen Christ ascends to heaven just after sending his disciples out into the world in the power of the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses. If you remember the precise moment this, this happens, uh, the disciples essentially ask Jesus, are, uh, are you going to make Israel great again? And Jesus said, no. I'm about building the kingdom of God, creating the kingdom of God here on earth. And your role in the kingdom of God is to serve as the witnesses, pointing out what you've seen, what you've heard, and what you've experienced. Your job is not to make Israel great again, but to be witnesses of the kingdom of God here on earth. And in this moment, the disciples who are learners, who've been following Jesus through his ministry on earth, become apostles, missionaries, sent out to bear witness of the reconciliation which has occurred in Jesus Christ. It's very exciting. And then after that, the Holy Spirit falls fresh on this new community and, and they just grow like crazy. Thousands of people are being added to this community every day, they tell us. Apostles are being arrested and then they're being released miraculously. We, pray, or we read once that they were praying for boldness and the Holy Spirit enters into the place in which they gathered and like shakes it. And it just seems like nothing can stop this new community of Christ followers. And then we get to chapter 6. And we meet a man named Stephen, who was one of the first deacons. And we're reading about the remarkable work that Stephen is doing, the, the way that he is assisting the poor, the way that he is feeding the hungry so the apostles can continue to uh, teach and to um, spread the gospel. And we find that Stephen comes up against an angry mob and Stephen is arrested. And we think, wow, oh, this is going to work out. We have good reason to believe that Stephen is going to be okay. He's going to get through this and he's going to continue with the work that he has been doing. But that's not how the story goes, is it? Stephen is killed at the hands of this angry mob. And the church learns a very important lesson that day. That prayer is not like magic. It just doesn't work like that. That sometimes even the things that you're praying for don't work out that way. And that God doesn't always protect Christians from painful experiences. I imagine that you've had one or both of these experiences. Maybe you've experienced a time in your life where it felt like everything was going according to plan. Everything was going amazing. There was like nothing that could stop you. And God was answering the prayers that you were praying in, in all the ways that you wanted them to be answered. And life was good. And that was kind of like the way that the beginning of the church was. But then I'm sure that you've also experienced, just as you've experienced God's holy yes in your life, you've also encountered God's holy no. when praying for something to change or to work out. I mean, no doubt that you have called upon God to intervene in your life only to be disappointed. 
And by the time we reach our text for today in chapter 12, the church is fully living into its mission as the sent people of God. As we learned last week, they are preaching across socioeconomic, sociocultural boundaries. They are preaching to the outsiders, to those who hadn't belonged yet, to the Gentiles. And they are telling them of the good news of the reconciliation that God has accomplished through Jesus Christ. But as they're doing that, they're facing severe persecution. Severe persecution. And today we see again how God responds to the prayers of God's witnesses. So I invite you to read with me from chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. Listen now for the word of the Lord. About that time, King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. After he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the festival of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in a prison and handed him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. While Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently to God for him. And the very night before Herod was going to bring him out, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers, while guards in front of the door were keeping watch over the prison. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He tapped Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his wrists. The angel said to him, Fasten your belt and put on your sandals. He did so. And then he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Peter went out and followed him. He did not realize that what was happening with the angel's help was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. After they had passed the first and the second guard, they came out, or they came before the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went outside and walked along a lane, when suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many had gathered and were praying. When he knocked at the outer gate, a maid named Rhoda came to answer. And on recognizing Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the gate, she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she insisted that it was so. They said, it is his angel. Meanwhile... Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the gate, they saw him and were amazed. He motioned to them with his hand to be silent and described for them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he added, tell this to James and to the believers. Then he left and went to another place. And when morning came, there was no small commotion among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and could not find him, he examined the guards and ordered them to be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea. And stayed there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Holy God, take my words and use them to amplify your liberating and reconciling eternal word. And take all of our thoughts and transform them so that each and every thought might be held captive to Jesus. And then take our lives and fill them with your Holy Spirit. And sweep us out from here into the world that you love. Which you've called us to serve. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So if you're reading this passage this morning with 
critical eyes. You may have this question. Did the prayers of the church, the fervent prayers of the church, result in Peter's release from prison? Did the prayers of the church result in Peter's release from prison? Think of all the many questions we have about the mystery of prayer. Maybe the biggest one is, does this really work? Does this really change things? Surely the church prayed fervently for James, who had been killed by Herod. Does prayer really work? Well, the early church seems to believe strongly enough in the power and miracle of prayer not to lower their expectations, even after James' death, which tells us at least a little bit about their theology of prayer, doesn't it? That they're not willing to stop praying, to stop asking God, even after they have seen this. We're not told exactly what they prayed for, only how they prayed. And Luke tells us that they prayed fervently. Fervently. The reformer John Calvin tells us that this is not cold or perfunctory prayer, but this is earnest. It's continuous prayer. The Greek word from which we translate this word fervent is one which implies focus and definition. It's not vague. It's not ambiguous. The the idea is that the church knew what it was praying for, had a specific thing in mind. And even though Luke doesn't record what that specific prayer might have been, it's hard to imagine, right, that they're not pleading to God for Peter to be released from jail. I mean, they know Herod. Herod has been violent not only to the church, but to Jesus. He's violent here at the end of the story. They know well the violence of the state. So they're praying that Peter might be released back to them so that he can continue his work. And I've been thinking a lot about this idea of fervent prayer. What would it mean for us as a church to pray fervently in a time such as the one in which we're living currently? Especially in response to the violence that we have seen this summer. And I've noticed a couple of things. One of the things that I've been paying attention to is how common it is, especially on social media, to offer uh, thoughts and prayers rather vaguely or to, you know, hashtag praying or hashtag sending prayers. Um, I, have, I don't know where they're going, but they're, they're being sent. And I know that, that, that maybe I'm being a little cynical here, but I think we need to make a very uh, distinct um, point, a distinction here. And that is that sending our thoughts and prayers, offering our thoughts and prayers, is not the same thing as actually praying for someone or for something. I've learned this lesson uh, with my friend Carl. Carl and I first uh, met in, in Princeton. He went there to study English. I went there to study at the seminary. And we were, uh, had met at the, the church that we were worshiping at. And uh, you know, one day we were cleaning up leaves outside of the church, I think, and I learned that he had spent some time in Seattle, and he could tell I was from the Northwest because of this magnificent beard. Um, and so we just immediately, you know, like we're drawn to each other, and we decided like, man, I don't have any friends. I'm new here. You don't have any friends. Let's, let's be friends. But we're both followers of Christ, so like let's try not to be superficial here. What if we met every Friday morning and, and just spent some time praying together? And at first we didn't know each other like really at all, and so we 
really relied upon a heavy kind of structure. We'd come together, we'd have a, uh, some time of silent meditation, after which we would read a psalm together, and then we would kind of spontaneously, awkwardly try to pray for one another, and then we would finish with the Lord's Prayer and say amen, and, and we would go on our day. Well, after a while, Carl and I became pretty good friends. And every Friday morning, we would meet in the chapel, Miller Chapel there on the seminary campus. And, uh, you know, our, our conversation would start to edge out any of the prayer time that we had been, uh, you know, doing for a while. And we realized that we would talk and we'd catch up with one another. And then at the end, we, maybe we'd have some time for some, the Lord's Prayer. And, and then at the end, what we would do is, like, I'll be praying for you this week. I'll be praying for you. And... As sincere as I think both of us were with, you know, saying that, I think that we both started to see that this is a little bit less powerful uh, than what we had been doing. And so uh, it's not as if we tried to go back to that rigid structure, but instead when we left one another that we, uh, we started to make explicit what we were going to be praying for for that week. And so instead of Carl just saying, I'm praying for you, he would say, John, this week, I'm going to pray for you as you are uh, still in this discernment process about becoming a pastor. I'm going to pray for you that you would not neglect your relationship with your wife and with your son. I'm going to pray for you that every day that you would claim the love of God on your life. And suddenly we started to realize that 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 was much more deeply transformative for me, knowing that he knew how to pray for me, knowing the things that he was actually asking God to do in my life. And it was transformative for Carl to voice those things and to be held accountable to actually making those specific requests. And so instead of just offering thoughts and prayers, we as the church can actually offer very specific prayers. Of course, we do this in the promise that when we are exhausted by our lives or by the things that we are enduring, that the Holy Spirit will pray for us when we don't know how to pray. And we do all of this believing that God will answer our prayers according to his holy divine will. But I believe that we should be praying specifically for specific things. For example, right now, we could pray that God would receive all of those who have been killed by terrorists, by deranged gunmen, by police, into his everlasting and eternal care. We can pray that God would forgive all of us for any complicity, for any uh, participation, known or unknown, in creating a culture of violence. We could pray that God would eliminate every trace, every trace of the institution, the sinful institution of racism in our country. We could pray for those who are fleeing their homes as war and terrorism takes their homes and their land from them. And maybe most of all, we could pray that God would make each and every one of us instruments of peace. Instruments of peace. And I think maybe we think that we're letting God off the hook if we don't pray specifically for specific things. Maybe we're just preparing for disappointment. Like if I pray for that thing and it doesn't happen, then I'm going to be pretty bummed. I'm going to be resentful. So I just won't name it and then we'll just kind of It just doesn't work like that. And it won't transform us like we think that it will. But maybe the lesson we need to learn most from this first community of Christians is that it is possible both to pray earnestly, to to pray specifically, while also 
surrendering to God's holy will. These aren't two separate things we can't do at the same time. And I think that the first community of Christians were able to do both of these things really well was because they, they had developed a habit of prayer. See, the other thing that fervent prayer is is that it's not just definite and, uh, and specific, but it's actually an attitude. It's a posture, a disposition, more than just an event. And you get to this posture of prayer by doing it a lot, by regularly practicing, by regularly going and standing before the presence of God and making your needs known. And one thing that a regular prayer life that a regular prayer life like that will do is to shape you into the kind of person who will trust in God's holy will, no matter if the answer is yes or if the answer is no. But I think that I'm doing that thing that I hate preachers do, which is to lob out a really complicated question and then kind of like dance around it. So the lingering question being, does prayer really change things? Does prayer really change things? No doubt you have experienced maybe someone who is frustrated with you for praying for them when they're going through something difficult. I mean, in times of crisis, it's common for us to offer prayers, to say, I'm praying for you. I will be keeping you in my prayers. I know that many of my friends, specifically uh, members of marginalized communities right now, are tired of Christians praying. They voice this to me. That instead of praying, why don't you do something? And I get that. I get the sentiment behind that. I really do. Prayers can be a cheap substitute for us getting our hands dirty, for doing something, for being agents of change, seeking justice. So I totally get that. And Christians should not use it as a, a way to hide. But the way that we act in the world as Christians is by praying that God would act through us, that God would act with us, that God would act for us. We have no action in the world that is detached from that relationship. At least no meaningful action. But prayer is not just the practice by which we petition God to do something for us. It's also kind of the training grounds. It's the practice by which we learn how to do this work to be agents of change, to be makers of peace. So does prayer change things? The answer is yes, absolutely. Prayer changes things. Prayer is making yourself fully present to the holy presence of God, standing in front of the holy presence of God. The God who creates out of nothing, the God who raises Jesus Christ from the dead, the God who sends God's Holy Spirit, capable of shaking the room in which we are gathered. I don't know anyone that can stand in this presence and not be changed. So of course, prayer changes things. And most of all, prayer changes the lives of those who are praying. And I think that the early Christians knew this. I think this is why they gathered to pray once again, even as they are grieving the loss of James. They know it's not just a time to rehearse their anxieties out loud before God, but it is a deep communion with God in which we learn that even if our prayers bring no relief, that we can rest in God's holy presence, that we can trust God's holy will. And being in that presence, we are transformed into the kind of people who can let go of control. Even at the same time as we are pleading with God to help us and to save us. 
We're told that after Peter was liberated from jail, that he went to the house where the church had gathered as they're praying for his release. And, you know, as you noted as we were reading it, this scene is absolutely hilarious. It is straight up Bill Murray in a Wes Anderson movie. Like, Peter is Bill Murray, and he's standing at the door. He knocks. The, the servant comes to get him and, like, freaks out and leaves him there. Like, he's a fugitive. He has just miraculously escaped from prison, and he's standing out there. She goes to tell everyone. The church is like, you're crazy. It's just his angel. And then, like, she could have just brought him in. It's crazy. But the thing that we learn here is that the church, even as they are praying for God to release Peter, cannot even believe that Peter would show up, that God would answer their prayer in that way. And sometimes when we are so accustomed to hearing God's holy no, it is so hard to actually believe that God would answer yes. But the good news is that sometimes, sometimes, and maybe even oftentimes, the answer to our prayers is yes. And God delights in giving us the delights and the desires and the longings of our hearts. The answer is yes. And the challenge is that the only way that we actually know that it's a yes is if we continue to put ourselves in the position of asking God. So the more that we actually make a regular habit of praying, it's the only way we're going to actually know that God is answering our prayers. Yes, giving us the things that we desire and that we need. Maybe though you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and you were tired of praying and you haven't heard an answer, not even a hint of an answer. Maybe the answer is inviting you to respond in faith and you lack the courage to do so. Or maybe like Peter in the jail cell, you think that you're only imagining that God could be answering your prayer and leading you to safety. The challenge is to keep going, isn't it? Step after step to keep going. Trusting that God is releasing you from the prison in which you are are locked. Much of our lives, I think we just have to keep going. As I've been exhausted by the carnage of this summer, frankly, The promise in this text, the word of God here and now is to keep going. Just like Peter, even while we doubt, trusting that God is indeed saving us, leading us to safety, liberating us from the prisons that we are locked inside. And then only later to look back and to see that God's hand was on us all the time, all along the way. Sometimes the answer to our prayer is no. We see that in the book of Acts. Sometimes it's no, and we have to resign ourselves to trust in God's holy will and to rest in his presence. But sometimes the answer is yes. It's yes. And God's gift to us matches our deepest desires. And yet at all times, we just have to keep going. We have to keep going. Believing that no matter what we face, God's with us, God is for us, and God is present to us as we turn to him in prayer. And so as a sent people of God, as the sent community, my friends, let us resolve to keep going. No matter what. Let's resolve to keep going. To not forsake the practice of gathering together 
to pray for God to act for us, to God to act through us and in us, that we might be saved. Would you pray with me? Oh God, help us to pray like the early church. Help us to have a regular habit of praying. Not only for our own lives, but for the lives of others within our own communities. Give us faith like Peter, who followed you out of captivity and into safety. Who had the faith and the courage to just keep going. Give us the same courage, the same trust, the same faith, so that we might too keep going. In your holy name, amen.